WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio proudly presents the Marian Hour with Father Dwight Campbell, spiritual advisor to WSFI and pastor of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and St. Therese in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be back on air with the Marian Hour and we're celebrating this this great week of Holy Week. We're coming up to, we're at the cusp of the, the Triduum, um, the three holy days, Holy Thursday, tomorrow, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter Sunday, celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I'm here to talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary today, and we'll begin with um, a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Remember, O most, most gracious Virgin Mary, Mary that, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly into thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I wanted to pick up today where I left off last week and actually was beginning uh, well, two weeks ago, I should say, and then two weeks before that, discussing Mary's virginity, her tripart virginity, her threefold virginity. Remember, Mary is a virgin in conceiving Jesus. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that she, conce that she conceived Jesus on Annunciation Day, and then Mary is a virgin uh, in giving birth. We call that in partu. Um, that's the Latin phrase. Uh, in the process of giving birth, she remains a virgin. And this is something that I don't think Catholics uh, in general uh, understand. They, they uh, understand and commonly accept Mary's virginity in conceiving Jesus, but uh, many sometimes are surprised to learn that Mary was a virgin in giving birth to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And <coughs> this has been a constant teaching throughout the history of the Church. It was St. Augustine who said, if Mary was not a virgin in giving birth, in the process of giving birth, if she didn't remain a virgin in that process, then we can't call her a virgin. She has to be a virgin in conceiving Jesus and giving birth to him and ever after. One more note on, on the virginity in partu in giving birth. Uh, the Roman Catechism makes reference to how the, the fathers of the church used biblical images to convey this truth. For example, <coughs> Mary's virginity in partu when giving birth is likened to uh, the closed gate of the sanctuary 
referred to by the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 44, verse 2. Uh, it's also likened to the burning bush, which Moses saw burning, but it wasn't consumed. Similarly, Mary gave birth without violating her virginity. And also, uh, the Song of Songs, the Canticle of Canticles, as it's also called, chapter 4, verse 12, speaks of the sealed fountain. This was another image that the fathers used to uh, convey an implicit revelation in the Old Testament that Mary brought forth Jesus, gave birth to him, remaining a virgin. Other fathers talk about how um, Jesus passed through the tomb uh, without uh, having to move the rock, okay, his glorified body. So Jesus passed through Mary's womb without violating her virginity. And a basis for this in tradition is the formula we read in the Creed, born of the Virgin Mary. And the Church Fathers perceived in faith that the Son of God in his birth could not violate his mother in the process of giving birth. And from that line, born of the Virgin, the Fathers of the Church also drew the truth, which I'm going to discuss today, of Mary's virginity postpartum. Okay. Postpartum means after birth. And I'll, I'll quote here a talk, a catechesis, that Pope St. John Paul II gave on August 22nd, 1996. St. John Paul said, and I quote here, After the birth of Jesus, there are no reasons for thinking that the will to remain a virgin, which Mary expressed at the moment of the Annunciation, then changed. Remember Mary at the Annunciation, when the angel announced to her, How can this be, since I do not know man? The angel responded to her that she would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And <clears throat> I'll say something about those words also, because it was St. Augustine who looked to those words of the Blessed Virgin Mary that we find in chapter 1 of St. Luke's Gospel. Mary, when the Archangel Gabriel is announcing to her that she will conceive and bear a son. Mary says, how can this be, since I do not know man? Those are actually the words she used. Knowledge meaning intimate knowledge. And St. Augustine saw in that, that protest of Mary, you could say, um, a revelation that, that Mary intended to remain a virgin forever. And I discussed this, oh, a couple of months ago uh, on the air. I'll, I'll just speak to it once again because it is a good argument for Mary's perpetual virginity, her virginity after giving birth. The words of Mary, how can this be since I do not know man, reveal her intention to remain a virgin forever. And 
that's clear if we think about uh, the fact that Mary at the Annunciation was already legally married to Joseph. The engagement had already begun, which meant the legal marriage was entered into, but this was before they came together. St. Luke says that in chapter 1 of St. Luke's Gospel. And <coughs> if you were a young woman engaged, say you were going to um, be married in, in a month or two months, and an angel came to you and announced that you would conceive and bear a son, naturally you would think, well, okay, uh, when, when I come together with my husband and we have marital relations, I will conceive. Thanks for the good news. But Mary is perplexed by this and troubled. You know, how can this be since I do not know man? And that knowledge refers to a knowledge that would continue. She never intended on knowing Joseph in that intimate way. St. Augustine says this, and even St. John Paul II, um, as well as others, say this in the tradition of the Church, using that line of Mary as evidence for her intention to remain a virgin. And <clears throat> Mary, however, was open to God's will. If God did not want her to remain a virgin, if he wanted her to have relations with Joseph, she was open to that truth. St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, comments on that aspect of Mary's words. But we know that the angel reassured her. The angel said, don't worry, Mary, you will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that reassured Mary that her vow of virginity, which traditionally we think was made by Mary at the age of three, she's taken to the temple, that's the presentation of Mary, which we celebrate on November 21st. It is then she dedicates her life to God, that consecrating her virginity to God. And as I said, she was open to changing that if it were God's will, but God made it clear that wasn't his will with the angel's words that you would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, <clears throat> I'll return now to... Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul's Catechesis of August 28, 1996, when he's speaking of Mary's virginity postpartum, or her perpetual virginity. Okay, she remains a virgin. St. John Paul II points out that the words of Jesus from the cross, woman, behold your son, reveal that Mary had no other children. The reason is, I'll quote John Paul II, um, he says, uh, the words, woman, behold your son, which Jesus addressed from the cross to Mary, to his beloved disciple, imply that Mary had no other children. Now, why is that? Well, because Jesus would not have entrusted the Blessed Virgin Mary to John, the disciple who's at the foot of the cross, if Mary had other children. It would have been the custom and it would have been right and proper for Jesus to entrust Mary to other children that Mary had, that Mary bore. But Jesus did not do this. He entrusted the Virgin Mary to St. John, who was at the foot of the cross. So this is more evidence, biblical evidence, that Mary remained a virgin. And 
that reference to other children in the scriptures, uh, I'll quote John Paul II, should not be uh, thought that it should not be thought that this refers to other children of Mary. I'll quote St. John Paul II here. He says, It should be recalled that no specific term exists in Hebrew and Aramaic to express the word cousin, and that the term brother and sister therefore included several degrees of relationship. Continuing, John Paul says, the phrase brothers of Jesus, which we see in the scriptures, indicates the children of a Mary who was a disciple of Christ and who was significantly described as the other Mary. In fact, in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, um, verse 56, uh, we see Mary, uh, the, another Mary, is referred to who's the mother of James. And James, the apostle, is referred to as a brother of Christ. Well, he's not a brother, a blood brother of Jesus, the, the, the son of the Virgin Mary. He is a mother of the other Mary. So there is biblical evidence that, at least with a couple of people, brothers and sisters, refers to others who we know are not the children of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but rather the other Mary. And this is something that we, we just, uh, that the, I should say the Church has understood uh, all along uh, throughout the history in holding to Mary's perpetual virginity. And, well, <coughs> I think, um, I think we'll, well, I see we know we're, we're a little bit short of 20 minutes. I'll, I'll wait a few minutes. I've got, let me make one more point here. I want to talk about St. Jerome, okay? St. Jerome, uh, the great biblical scholar, you know, St. Jerome translated the whole of the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, into Latin. And um, he did this at the request of the Pope, and he went to Bethlehem, he learned Hebrew, Aramaic, he said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. He consulted the best sources to get the best translation. He was a good textual critic. Okay, he wanted the best um, um, uh, uh, copies of, of the scriptures, both old and new, when he went to translate the Bible into, um, into uh Latin. It's the Latin Vulgate, which is still used in the traditional Mass. And St. Jerome, besides being a great biblical scholar, uh, he was also a great defender of the Virgin Mary's virginity, her perpetual virginity, her threefold virginity. And he wrote a famous letter, Adversus Helvidium, against Helvidius. And it was a uh, basically uh, a discussion, an argument that this person Helvidius had with St. Jerome claiming that Mary had other children. And um, St. Jerome uh, refuted very strongly this false teaching of Helvidius that uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary had other children. And I'm going to open up a, a book here and quote from St. Jerome, it's a book, The Consecration to St. Joseph, The Wonders of Our Spiritual Father. 
Uh, it's by Father Donald Calloway, um, Marian of the Immaculate Conception. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of this book. Uh, many of you probably have purchased the book already. I hear that uh, bookstores are running out of copies because it's been so popular. And uh, Father Don Calloway, um, he wrote this beautiful book, really kind of a compendium on the teaching of the church in regard to St. Joseph, Josephology, as you would call it in, in, uh, in theology. And he beautifully lays forth the church's teaching on St. Joseph. And it's in the context of doing a 33-day consecration to St. Joseph as one's spiritual father. St. Joseph is our spiritual father. As Father Calloway wisely notes in, in this book, Mary is our spiritual mother, right? We all know that because Jesus is our brother. St. Paul tells us that. Well, Mary is the natural mother of Jesus, and because Jesus is our brother, that makes Mary our spiritual mother. Well, if Mary is our spiritual mother, because Jesus is our brother, St. Joseph is our spiritual father, because St. Joseph is the true legal father of Jesus. He is the virgin father of Jesus, as Father Calloway so beautifully presents that the church is teaching, especially from the Middle Ages on, about Joseph's virginity. And uh, the book takes one through a 33-day consecration, each day considering different um, privileges and, and glories of, of St. Joseph. And <coughs> in part of the book, Wonder Number 4, in regard to St. Joseph, uh, Father Calloway speaks about the uh, Joseph as the virginal father of, of Jesus. And in this, in this chapter, uh, the virginal father of Jesus, Father Calloway notes uh, that if we're going to talk about Joseph being a virginal father of Jesus, a virginal husband to Mary, it was appropriate because Mary was a virgin, appropriate that Joseph should marry uh, pardon me, that the Virgin Mary should marry someone who is a virgin likewise. And the strong tradition in the church is that Joseph was a virgin. But before he discusses St. Joseph's virginity, Father Calloway lays out Mary's virginity in a couple of pages. And I'll be quoting here from his book, page 128. He quotes St. Joseph in his letter against Helvidius, and uh, St. Jerome, pardon me, St. Jerome, his letter against Helvidius, says that, um, this is St. Joseph, pardon me, St. Jerome speaking, certain people follow the ravings of the Apocrypha. Um, the Apocrypha or are books that were written that maybe even had an apostle's name on them, but they are not canonical. They weren't written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he, um, St. Jerome says that he, he wrote uh, against Helvidius, 
that we understand as brethren of the Lord, brothers and sisters of the Lord, not the sons of Joseph, but the cousins of the Savior, children of Mary, the Lord's maternal aunt, Mary, wife of Clopas, who is said to be the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Jude in the New Testament. They were called brethren. So uh, we, we have this good tradition from fathers of the church, doctors like St. Jerome, that the brothers and sisters of the, the brothers and sisters of, of Jesus referred to in the Gospels are not children of the Blessed Virgin Mary, but cousins of our Lord. So with that said, I'm going to take a little break here because I've gone a little past my 20-minute mark and uh, allow time for um, a good advertisement for our station, WSFI 88.5 FM. My name is Rich Wenzel, and I'm the director of the Institute of Christopher Leaders. In today's busy world, I think Catholic Radio is the best thing for us all. It allows us to hear what else is going on in our larger Catholic community. Whenever possible, I turn on the radio and be able to connect to other leaders around that I'm liking to hear what their viewpoint is and what they're doing. So my encouragement is Catholic Radio. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at WSFIRadio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. For over 150 years, Catholic Financial Life has been protecting our members while caring for our brothers and sisters in need. In response to this pandemic, Catholic Financial Life is launching our Love One Another campaign. Between now and May 15th, Catholic Financial Life will match dollar for dollar the first $50,000 donated in order to create a $100,000 impact. All money raised will go to local charities on the front lines, like first responders, hospitals, or food pantries. Will you join us? Visit www.cfl.org and click on the Donate Today button. That is cfl.org and donate today. At Catholic Financial Life, we are always with you. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. Hello, Father Campbell. We're back with the Marian Hour, speaking about uh, our continuing catechesis on Mary's 
virginity. We're talking about her perpetual virginity today, Mary's virginity postpartum, after she gave birth. She had no other children. And before I go back to talking about that, I'm just going to make a little announcement here because I think it's, it's um, worthy of being said. I um, don't know if you heard, but on the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th, uh, the, the bishops of not only Portugal, but 23 other countries consecrated their countries to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, especially during this coronavirus crisis. That was the idea. The bishops of Portugal decided to do this, and then the bishops of Spain heard about it, and they said, oh, can we join you in this? And then word spread, and 23 other countries besides Portugal joined in bishops' conferences that consecrated their countries to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. The two hearts are united in this bond of love, inseparable. St. John Paul II, um, my position is that he made this a doctrine of the Church because he spoke about, about the union, the covenant of the two hearts of Jesus and Mary many, many times. And uh, this covenant began uh, at, the, at the Annunciation when the Incarnation took place, when Mary gave her fiat. St. John Paul II said that when the heart of Jesus began to, to beat beneath the heart of Mary at the Incarnation, that is when this union, this covenant of love began between the two hearts. And this covenant was consummated on Calvary uh, as Mary stood beneath the foot of the cross. And this is something that I'll speak on a little later in this hour about Mary at the foot of the cross, her virginal motherly heart united with the heart of Christ. But uh, for now, I'm going to get back to the topic uh, at hand, which is the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. Uh, another objection that some have to Mary's perpetual virginity, and here we're talking about our Protestant brothers and sisters, okay, who, who claim that the brothers and sisters of Jesus mentioned in the Gospels are brothers and sisters of Jesus and children of Mary. Another objection they have is that uh, Mary couldn't have remained a virgin because in St. Luke's Gospel, he speaks of Jesus as the firstborn of Mary. In fact, Father Calloway, in his book, The Consecration to St. Joseph, uh, as a prelude to speaking of Joseph's virginity, lays out Mary's virginity, the case for it, and he makes the point here um, that, well, he quotes St. Jerome, the great St. Jerome, who says, firstborn uh, customarily in Holy Scripture refers to not one whom brothers follow after the firstborn's birth, but rather he who was begotten first. 
So Jesus is called the firstborn because he was the first to be to be born by the Virgin Mary. This is what you call the firstborn son. You call him the firstborn, whether or not other children came after that. So that is not an argument undercutting the notion that Mary didn't have other children. Now a third argument, which is uh, a little more, you could say, um, uh, strong on the on the part of of non-Catholic Christians, uh, strong in in on its face, but not in reality. I'll say, okay, is the verse from Saint Matthew's Gospel. After Saint Matthew speaks of how Joseph learned of Mary's pregnancy, was going to uh, put her away quietly, and the, the angel came to St. Joseph and reassured him, do not fear, Joseph, to take Mary as your wife, okay? because it was by the Holy Spirit that she conceived. Now, Joseph, I'll, I'll say this, Father, Father Calloway, makes a great argument, a beautiful argument in his book, The Consecration of St. Joseph, that Joseph never intended to divorce Mary, that Joseph somehow knew that Mary was pregnant, and it was out of reverence, and this is the, the, the stronger tradition in the church, beginning with uh, great saints from the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, Joseph uh, feared that he wasn't uh, worthy enough to be the husband of Mary and the foster father, the virgin father, the legal father of Jesus. So he wanted to withdraw from this relationship and and um, and uh, end the relationship and the the not go through with the the marriage. Okay, uh, coming together with Mary, and this is when the angel assured him, saying, "Do not be afraid." And after receiving that message, Joseph was no longer afraid. He, he no longer felt himself unworthy. Uh, I mean, he still did feel unworthy to take upon this great responsibility, but he didn't feel himself uh, too unworthy that he, he couldn't go through with it after being reassured by the angel. So he takes Mary into his home. St. Matthew relates this. And then St. Matthew goes on to say, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Okay. As I pointed out last week, the virgin shall be with child or conceive and bear a son. So Isaiah is talking about Mary conceiving Jesus and then remaining a virgin and giving birth. The virgin bears a son. She's a virgin and giving birth. And that child is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Then St. Matthew goes on to say this. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife into his home. Then St. Matthew says he had no relations with her until she bore a son, and he named him Jesus. Now, maybe some eyebrows are going up with that statement. 
I'll, I'll put it out to my guests here. Anyone have a comment? Angela, do you have a comment about that? Well, it's kind of curious because it sounds like, well, after she had the son. After she, she bore did. Jesus, yeah, yes. It implies that he, t- he did have relations with her afterwards, doesn't it? It, it, it? On its face, because of the word until. Okay, yes. Because of that word until, it sounds to us, to our ear, right. that Mary had relations with Joseph. I'll read this verse again. Joseph had no relations with her, with Mary, until she bore a son. Well, the problem is the word until. And (coughs) the word until doesn't mean (laughs) what we normally think it means in in our usage in in uh, as we as we use it in English. Okay, Uh, the Greek word for until uh, either heos or how, H-O-U. The um, uh, Hebrew word is odd, okay? And especially in the Hebrew, it is used in a different sense, in a different understanding. For example, um, in the second book of Samuel, if you remember King David, was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And he was dancing before the Ark, uh, making merry. The people were cheering. He had a tambourine. He's dancing. And uh, his wife, uh, Michal, okay, or Michael, you could say, M-I-C-H-A-L is how we pronounce it, or spell it in English. Okay, she was the daughter of King Saul. Saul is out of the picture at this time, and um, she ridicules David for making a spectacle of himself before the commoners. Okay, she says, "How could you? How could you do this? You know, dancing in front of of the ark with uh, with all these common people around. You know, you're the king. You should, you know, be you know have more dignity than that." And David response to her, listen, I was dancing before the ark, and this, this is God's presence among us. Uh, this wasn't to exalt myself or to make a show of things before these commoners. I had no such intention as this. Well, the scriptures go on to say that, um, that Michael or Michal had no other children until the day she died. Now, she didn't have children after she died, of course. The word until, as it is used in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, doesn't imply a continuation of the activity afterwards. Okay. And actually, uh, Father Calloway, in his book on discussing the virginal father of Jesus, St. Joseph. He lays out the case for Mary's virginity first. He has an excellent summary on this point. Okay, he, he talks about uh, a number of scripture verses. He quotes St. Thomas Aquinas from the Summa. Um, this is what St. Thomas says, until does not necessarily have a determined temporal sense. And then he quotes Psalm 122, verse 2. Our eyes are turned to the Lord until he have mercy on us. 
This does not mean that once we have obtained the mercy of God, we shall take our eyes off of him. So, uh, again, there's another use of until that uh, doesn't imply a continuation of activity or inactivity in either case. Okay. Is there another word, Father, another choral that you would use instead of until? Uh, I, I can't think of one right now. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, this is, this is the understanding of, of how the word is used. Uh, another example is from the Gospel of St. John. Remember the, the man who was blind and uh, regained yeah. his sight. And um, there's a reference. Let me, let me just, I'll have to open up in my, my Bible because I have it marked. I'll read the verse to you where... Again, no, Father, this is one of the few times I wish we had we were a video as well as audio because <laughs> I love that Bible of yours. It's so worn and uh, you have all oh. little tabs in it. Okay, John oh. nine eighteen. Okay, so I'm going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter nine, verse eighteen. And <coughs> this is what. St. John tells us. Remember, this is the man born blind, and the Jews didn't believe him. Okay. Yes. This is verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. Well, after they summon the parents, and the parents give their testimony, the Jews still don't believe. So again, the word until doesn't mean, oh, they didn't believe up, and unti up until the, you know, they heard testimony from the parents. Then they believed. No, it doesn't imply anything afterwards. Okay. In fact, we know that the Jews continued to disbelieve afterwards. So there was no, no change in, in the situation. The word until it does not imply that. And um, I remember... Oh, maybe 20 years ago. This is just a little anecdote. Uh, I was at some friend's house for Christmas. And um, they're both Catholic. They have a number of kids. And uh, the wife's brother was there who fell away from the Catholic Church. And he was um, church shopping, going from Protestant church to Protestant church, Baptist, Evangelical, so on and so forth. And, you know, he came up to me and we began to s discuss Mary's virginity. And he was trying to lay a trap for me. And <laughs> he, he said, um, so, so, you know, you, you Catholics believe that Mary had no other children after she gave birth to Jesus, right? I said, yes, that's true. And he said, well, and he quoted the verse of Matthew in the gospel today, that Mary did not have relations with Joseph until she gave birth to Jesus. He says, aha, what do you say about that? And I said, listen, I won't say the, the person's name, but I said, listen, I said, don't you think that uh, over 2,000 years of, of the church's history that Catholic scholars and saints have addressed this question about 
you know, Mary not having relations with Joseph until she gave birth to Jesus. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, probably. And I said, yes, that's right. <laughs> I said, then I explained to him what I just explained over the past few minutes, that the word until does not mean what it appears to mean to our understanding. It had a different connotation back uh, in Old Testament times, especially, and even in the New Testament times, as I've demonstrated with a quotation from um, St. John, the, the Apostle. So um, I'll just quote a few, a few more verses uh, that's, that Father Calloway lists. This is page 130 of his consecration to St. Joseph. Now he's talking about the Virgin Mary here, okay, and the word until. He cites 1 Timothy 4.13. This is what St. Paul writes to him. Until I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Now, does this mean that Timothy should stop preaching on Jesus after Paul arrives? No, it doesn't. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15.25 For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, does Christ cease to reign after his enemies are placed under his feet? No, he will reign forever in the kingdom. And uh, uh, well, then he quotes Second Samuel six twenty three. Uh, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. Okay, that's that's the best one in my opinion because. Uh, did did she have children after she died? Of course not. Of course not. So until doesn't imply this this continuation of activity, a change in the situation. So with having said that, we'll take another little break here. Allow us to promote our wonderful station WSFI eighty eight point five FM. Hope you're turning it. You're tuning in. How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life, and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MATT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services are not available in all states. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. One thing hearing until. Hello, this is Father Dwight Campbell. We are back with the Marian Hour in this holiest week of the church year, Holy Week. Um, during this coronavirus, it doesn't seem as much as Holy Week to me as a priest, <laughs> as other Holy Weeks, uh, given that I know that I will not be celebrating the Triduum and Easter Sunday Mass with uh, my congregations and my parishes, but uh, we must bear with this, this cross. 
and do the best we can under the circumstances. Um, I'm going to just finish up here with, um, with Mary's perpetual virginity. And I'll, I'll quote again from Father Don Calloway's beautiful book, Consecration to St. Joseph, uh, the section where he's talking about the virginal father of Jesus, St. Joseph. He begins it by speaking about Mary's perpetual virginity. And um, he makes the point here that Mary and Joseph lived a virginal marriage. And that marriage resulted in a perpetually virginal son, Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, this is the bottom of page 130, 131, the teaching of the church that Mary and Joseph lived a virginal marriage is the basis of the tradition that Joseph was a perpetual virgin. St. Joseph, in a similar fashion to Mary, had made a vow of virginity to God in his youth. And he quotes a couple of saints, St. Francis de Sales. Uh, both Mary and Joseph made a vow to remain virgins all the days of their lives. God wished them to be united in the bonds of marriage, not because they repented of the vow already made, but to be confirmed in it and to encourage each other to continue in this holy relation. And he quotes St. Peter Julian Amar, the great saint of the Eucharist. Their marriage was very real. They gave themselves to each other. But how do they do this? Reciprocally, they gave their virginity, ga given to each other of a mutual right. What right? To safeguard the other's virtue. Beautiful, beautiful. And I'm, I'm going to share one story, one more story, um, in regard to the reason for Mary's perpetual virginity. And I remember when I was teaching, going back, oh, about 27 years ago, I was teaching freshman scripture class, Shalaman High School in Danville, Illinois. And I had some Protestant students in the class with the Catholic kids. And I, I actually enjoyed them being there because they would raise questions thinking as Protestants, objecting to things that the Catholic Church would say. Because I invited them to do so, and I said, uh, you know, I'll try to explain the Catholic position in the, in the best way I can. And with Mary's perpetual virginity, uh, I remember one of, the, one of the students, he was a boy, you know, he was just, was just having a hard time accepting that, that Mary, the Blessed Virgin, uh, was a perpetual virgin, that, that she did not um, uh, have relations with Joseph. One of the things I quoted to him was uh, the founders of Protestantism, both Martin Luther and, and um, Ulrich, Ulrich Zwingli. Okay. They both held to Mary's perpetual virginity, that Mary had no other children. Because to say this at that time, 500 years ago, was unthinkable. I'll quote from Luther here. This is from the works of Luther. It is an article of faith that Mary is the mother of the Lord and still a virgin. Christ, we believe, came forth from a womb left perfectly intact. Okay. So, 
She's a virgin in giving birth and forever afterwards. That's what Luther's saying there. And now to uh, Ulrich Zwingli, he, he says, this is from his, uh, his works, his corpus, I quote, I believe that Mary, according to the words of the Gospels, as a pure virgin brought forth for us the Son of God, and in childbirth, and after childbirth, forever remain, remaining a pure, intact virgin. So we see again with Zwingli, as with Luther, a profession of faith in Mary's virginity in partu, in giving birth, and postpartum, perpetually, after she gave birth. But besides that, to this Protestant student who was questioning me, I, I used this example. We had already studied the Old Testament. We were into the New Testament now. And I used an analogy with the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Now, Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. With the Old Covenant, as I taught my students, we had gone through the Old Testament, Okay, the the... Ark was carried around for a couple of hundred years, Moses and the Israelites wandering through the desert. Then they come into the Promised Land. Israel is ruled by judges for about another couple of hundred years. The Ark is still in a tent. David wants to build an Ark, pardon me, uh, a temple for right. the Ark. And he announces this to Nathan. Nathan says, no, you won't do it, but your son will. Solomon's the one who builds the temple, the great temple of Solomon. And with the temple of Solomon, you had an outer court, then an inner court where daily sacrifices were made, and then you had the inner inner court, which was, which was called the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the temple. Only the high priest could enter through the veil of the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and burn incense, you know, offering sacrifice for the sins of the people. It was believed that if you would enter into that, that Holy of Holies, anyone else would, you would be struck dead. You were not worthy to enter into that holiest place because God's presence was there. The two stone tablets that he had written on to Moses, the Ten Commandments, were in the Ark of the Covenant. Father. But, but after the Babylonians conquered the Israelites, the kingdom of Judah, the year 586 B.C., they destroyed the temple, and the Ark was lost. Hence the basis for the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. They don't know where the Ark is. Okay, We still don't know where the Ark is. There's an ancient tradition that Jeremiah the prophet took the Ark and hid it in a passageway under the temple. But no one's ever found it. Anyway, the Ark is, the, the ark is lost. The temple was raised, destroyed. Okay. Um, now, when King Herod rebuilds the temple, starting in about 20 B.C., the temple was built on a grand scale, and it wasn't completed until 68 AD. At that time, it was destroyed, as Jesus had prophesied by the Romans. But during that time, the rule was still in place 
because you, you had in the temple of, of Herod the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was still a place where only the high priest could enter in once a year because the ark had been there. Therefore, that place symbolized the Ark of the Covenant. Even though the Ark wasn't there, the Ark had left. It was gone. I used that argument. I, I said, okay, now the, the Jews had this sense of the holiness of place. You wouldn't enter into this Holy of Holies because the Ark had once been there. Now we go to Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus. She carried him in her womb for nine months. She is the new Ark of the Covenant. Joseph never would have dreamed, knowing that Mary carried the God-man, Jesus Christ, of having relations with, with the Virgin Mary. She, her, her body was consecrated to God. It would have been unthinkable for a Jew to violate this sacred space, Mary's womb, even after she had given birth. And I used that argument with, with um, the student, and he said, oh, that, that makes sense. Okay, I believe it now. Um, later, I learned that some other medieval uh, writer had come up with that argument. I thought, oh, well, uh, it wasn't my original one. For me, it was original, but uh, it, uh, it, it provides a good analogy with regard to the Virgin Mary. She is the new Ark of the Covenant carrying Jesus. At that time, Father, also... The ark contained the written word, the written word of God absolutely, within it. Absolutely, yes. And anyone that would touch the ark would die as well. It was so sacred. So if we parallel that with the New Covenant, the New Testament rather, we see Mary as the ark of the covenant with the living word of God within her. Absolutely. In fact, I'm glad you said that because that was one of my arguments to the student, and I forgot to say it, <laughs> that Mary just didn't carry two stone tablets in her womb with the writing of God on it. On it. She carried the very word made flesh in her womb. And that is really uh, much more powerful in regard to this holiness of place, her womb, and the Virgin Mary uh, never having thought to have relations with Joseph being the mother of God, and Joseph never would have had thought to have relations with the Virgin Mary knowing her, her sanctity in this regard. Now, with five minutes left, I want to just talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary at the foot of the cross. You know, there's, there's a feast of Mary, her heart pierced with sorrow at the foot of the cross. Do you know when that is? It was last Friday, first Friday. Well, actually, um, the the, the feast that September fifteenth is the common feast that most know Sorrowful about. It's Our Lady of Sorrows. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. that follows the exaltation of the Holy Cross. But on the Friday during Passion Week, Paschal Tide begins um, on two weeks before, two Sundays before Easter Sunday. In the traditional rite. It's, that's Passion Sunday, then the following week is Palm Sunday. But that Friday after Passion Sunday, which is the fifth week of Lent in the New Rite of the Mass, okay, in the traditional Mass, there is another feast, Our Lady of Sorrows as well, which is an option to celebrate on that Friday after the, uh, the first Friday during Paschal Tide. 
And that devotion to Mary and her sorrows, seven of them, really was promoted by the uh, the Servites, the the order, the Servants of Mary, which, which was founded in the year 1233. Seven holy founders, these, these men who were part of like a, a Marian confraternity. Uh, Mary appeared to them. She wanted them to found this, this religious congregation, and they began to attract followers. They're still around today. And they promoted the, the great um, devotion of the seven sorrows of Mary, which are, I'll, I'll name them here, the prophecy of Simeon, okay, she, this child will be the rise and the fall of many, a sword that will pierce your soul or your heart. The flight into Egypt, when they're fleeing from Herod, is the second sorrow. The loss of Jesus for three days, he's lost until they find him in the temple. The meeting of Mary and Jesus on the way to Calvary. Then standing at the foot of the cross. The sixth sorrow is Jesus being taken down from the cross, laid in the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, pardon me, he's taken down from the cross. And the seventh uh, sorrow is the burial of Jesus. Now those are our the seven sorrows, and there is a Our Lady of Char of Sorrows chaplet, which one can pray. It has seven different sections to it. You pray in Our Father, seven Hail Marys, where you would normally pray the, the uh, ten Hail Marys on a normal rosary. You pray seven in honor of Our Lady of Sorrows. And I'll mention one more thing here. Do I have a minute? Yes. I think I do. Okay. Um, I came across this in, in my uh, research. Um, there was a, a devotion promoted by Pope Pius VII in 1815 linking uh, the seven sorrows to, to like a three o'clock prayer that one would say. Okay. Um, and this is, this is found in the Recolta, as is the, the Our Lady of Sorrows chaplet. And the idea of, of every day at, at the three o'clock hour to, to stand with Mary at the foot of the cross and share with her, compassionate with her, the sorrows that she felt in her heart that Simeon had prophesied. It's a beautiful thing to do, and especially as we approach this Good Friday. Um, finally, the great hymn, the Stabat Mater, Jacoponi uh, Datori in the in the 12th century, he penned this this beautiful. Um, uh, series of verses to Mary standing at the foot of the cross, which we say, traditionally, we sing during the, the stations of the cross. At the cross her station keeping stood the mournful mother weeping, close to Jesus to the last. Hopefully we'll be able to sing that if you're tuning into any live stream versions of the stations of the cross. I'll be doing it at Mount Carmel Church and St. Therese Church. Uh, at 12 o'clock on Good Friday. God bless you. Have a, a blessed Holy Week and Easter Sunday. You have been listening to The Marian Hour with Father Dwight Campbell. For a free copy of this recording, please visit us at wsfipodbean.com.